BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 208 with my guest, Renee. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that, oh, Herbert chiming in. You can follow him at Herbert. Uh, you can follow me at mentalpod. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Um, yeah, go check out the website. There's all kinds of stuff there. Let's see. I want to kick it off with a struggle in a sentence survey. This is filled out by a, a trans man, a uh, teenager who is pansexual. He calls himself Brew. And uh, a snapshot from his life, he writes, uh, One time I overate. I ate a whole bag of Doritos and leftover pasta in the fridge and a Pop-Tart and a bag of popcorn and just so much food. I felt ugly and disgusting, so I went into the bathroom and tried to throw up. I couldn't do it no matter how far I shoved my fingers down my throat, and I got so upset and hated myself so much that I sat down on the bathroom counter and started cutting myself. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is by a guy who calls himself Lazy Fuck 69 how do, you, how do you not like that name? Uh, and he writes about having Asperger's like I'm an alien sent from another planet to figure out this strange race called humans. Turns out I really just suck at my job. Any suggestions to make the podcast better? Perhaps list some ways to deal with people who aren't willing or capable of understanding the concept that mental illness doesn't have to be seen to be experienced. And to which I would say, um, I, I don't know if I can say there's anything you can do. If somebody is unable to or unwilling to understand mental illness, maybe just avoid them. Um, but if somebody does have an interest, um, there's that, that makes a complete difference. Um, and there's a lot of things you could do. You could give them books to read. Um, you could try to turn them onto this podcast. I think this would be a, a great beginning place for them to understand what, uh, what we go through. Um, mental illness or trauma. 
This is the uh, same survey filled out by Lauren, and uh, she's a teenager, and about her anorexia, she writes, eating makes me feel dirty, whereas starvation is numbing and gives a distinct high. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself New Listener, and about her PTSD, she writes, I keep thinking to myself, do people know what happens to people who survive shootings? Because it sucks because the nightmares are constant, because you know how shitty people can act. And a snapshot from her life, I consistently have a hard time falling asleep because I'm scared about what I'll face in my dreams. Sending you some love. I can't imagine how hard that's got to be to survive something like that. Um, And if you happen to hear this, um, shoot me an email because I'd be interested in maybe having you write a guest blog about your your experience or if you get to Southern California to be a guest, uh, email me at mentalpod at gmail.com. This is filled out by Caitlin and about her anxiety. She writes, shaky hands, triggers, a rapid heartbeat, and a mind that races. About her OCD, she writes, as a child, all to do with a number two. I'm assuming that means poo and not the literal number two. Um, About her food addiction, binging and constant intake, obsessive about food, and when nearing 500 pounds is the only thing that raises my mood. About being a sex crime victim, fragmented within my mind and affects all of me. About her obesity, I feel like a blob who over-occupies space. I have given up and feel too far gone. Uh, It is the words my brain is repeating to me over and over again, too far gone. I cannot stop overeating. I cannot let myself become normal in body as I don't feel normal in mind. I cannot allow myself to ever again be viewed sexually. I don't deserve happiness and therefore I don't deserve to fit in a regular sized seat. Now that breaks my heart. This is from Lou. And uh, she writes about her PTSD, flashes, terror, lights, darkness, him, me, silence, screaming, wait, Um, wait is W-E-I-G-H-T. About uh, sexual bias, she writes, I hate men and their penises, they are weapons. Snapshot from her life, this morning I was meditating to help me keep in peace and I had flashbacks of the abuse that sent me into a state of terror. Now I'm at work. And I have to pretend that it didn't happen. I can't imagine how hard that must be. Sending you some love. This is filled out by Nick. And about his anxiety, he writes, A vice on your lungs, a ball of acid in your stomach. Wow. That is so fucking descriptive. Thank you for that, Nick. And uh, about a serious health issue, he writes, A broken back, constant throbbing. I guess I must have a broken penis. <laughs> this is filled up by Ellie, and uh, she's a teenager, and she writes about her anxiety. It's like being swallowed whole by yourself, feeling completely helpless and fragile, as if you're going to fall off the edge of something, anything, at any moment. About her anger issues, you're stuck inside yourself, being driven by someone you don't want to be. You have vanished, but you don't know it until after you have erupted with uncontrolled rage. In a snapshot from her life, she writes, I must have been about 17. I found myself on the edge of another mental breakdown. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to disappoint myself by harming myself again. I just sat on the floor bawling my eyes out in utter despair and helplessness. I felt like I was melting and the world was just carrying on around me, oblivious to how I felt. All I could think of to do 
was end my own suffering, but there was something that kept pulling me back and telling me to stay. I had no idea what it was. Still to this day, I have no idea, but it comes back to me whenever I hit rock bottom. The first time this happened to me, I was at my worst. I had just been broken up with, moved out of my house, lost my friends, my dad had let me down repeatedly, and I had failed my math exam again. I wanted to share this because I'm not sure that there are people out there who want to give up, but you're not alone, and you have to find a reason to pull yourself back. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with uh, Renee and uh, that's a, uh, a pseudonym we're going to use uh, for her so she can she can share more freely. And the reason is, it's not because any any big shame on your part, no. it's you've gotten your PhD and you will probably be teaching at some point and you yes. don't really want your students knowing all the details of your yes. personal life, yes. which is, I think is understandable. You're 31 years old. Yes. You're uh, a Latina. <laughs> yes. Um, you, you had emailed me um, mm -hmm. a couple of months ago and... Tell me what, what, what you said when you emailed me. Sure. So um, I do have my PhD, and mm -hmm. I'm actually the first in my family to have ever gone to college. I'm still the only person in my family to have gone to college. And so when people hear that, they often tell me, wow, it must be so amazing to have gone so far and be so successful. And it is amazing, and I do you know, love the fact that I accomplished all of that, but I think it those statements sometimes don't let me share the other half of it, I guess, which is that, um, it, you know, it, sometimes I feel like an imposter still. Um, and it came out of a place where I really had to take care of myself from a very, very young age um, because my family was just all kinds of crazy. And so um, at a very young age, I took it upon myself to basically be my own parent. And out of that came this ability to succeed. And so I think a lot of people go through that where they just become a little adult. And then it it will sometimes lead to a successful life, successful in quotes, because people see you and they think, oh, wow, you've done so much. But it does come at a cost. And so I, I think that's one of the topics that hasn't been really talked about on the podcast. You know, I, I relate to that very much um, because I think there's this when you're a little kid and you suddenly realize, even if it's not on a conscious level, that, oh, I'm on my own here. Yeah. 
I'm going to have to raise myself in mm-hmm. certain ways. I, I, you know, I may not have to feed myself, but uh, I'm going to have to figure out the world on yeah. my own. Um, there's this, and maybe I should just speak for myself, but there was this carrot that I would dangle that mm-hmm. once I get on TV, it'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. And then when I did reach that, it was like the bottom fell out of my world because it didn't fulfill me. And I was like, oh my God, this yeah. panic set in of where is happiness going to be then? Yeah. And you're faced with that that myth being popped that if you do enough, you will be okay. Yeah, I think that I definitely relate to that. There have been lots of moments in my life where I thought, oh, but I thought this is the end. This is when I would feel like I deserved it and it was all worth it and all that, especially later, because I feel like early on, I was just one of those kids who loved to go to school, loved to get good grades, all of that. And that really sustained me through college and then in grad school when you have to basically create your own carrots, you know, um, be your own boss. It kind of really fell apart because I... I basically, like, didn't think I was that good, you know, and so it was hard for me to set those deadlines and then motivate myself. Um, So, yeah, I definitely... Was there ever a voice in your head that was saying you're not like... Because you said you were one of two Latino students in your um, program. Yes. Was there a feeling... Is that what contributed to I'm an imposter, or was it other... Um, it was that, but I think the bigger issue was that I was the only person I interacted, or I didn't interact with anyone else who came from a working class or a poor background. And that was really hard. Uh, you know, because when you first arrive at anywhere new, you talk about, oh, you know, where are you from? What do your parents do? And so being around so many people with parents who were professors, parents who were lawyers, doctors, I felt so out of place. And um, I think the harder part of that was that often their parents knew the kind of stress they were under so they could support them in a way where they understood, oh, you're giving a talk. I understand that that is stressful Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you need someone to tell you it's going to be okay. And my parents were just completely in the dark. They had no idea. And your PhD, ironically, was in social psychology, which isn't as geared towards the individual experience as as clinical right. or therapeutic psychology but still there's a component yeah. in it of even though you look at society as as a whole and mm-hmm. it's more like sociology there's still yeah. this irony that it's about what do people feel and experience and how yeah. do they relate to the world and there you are <laughs> yeah it's definitely been completely informed by my experiences so so give me an example you're sitting around with your your friends in college and they're talking about something and they pose a question to you, what's something that would make your your insides kind of clench up and go, oh, my God, they're going to judge me? Oh, about being, like, from a mm-hmm. low SES family? Um, what's SES? Socioeconomic status. Okay. Uh, so I guess it's jargon okay. <laughs> in my field. Um, I'm try- I mean, mostly when they would talk about what their parents did. Um, a, a big one was just, like, oh, my parents are coming to visit. Are your parents going to visit? It's like, my parents can't afford to visit. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I have to go to them. There's no way. How far um, away did they live from where you went? So it was um, about 500 miles. So okay. not far. I drove. 
um, whenever I wanted to go home. Uh, this is an eight-hour drive. And so I would go home all the time. So it was things like that where they would just assume, like, oh, of course your parents will visit. The only my, – my mom visited me twice, um, and the second time was for my graduation. So, you know, things like that or – Did you get the, the sense that she was proud of you when she came to visit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even though she didn't quite get – she still doesn't quite get what I do, um, she's very, very proud mm-hmm. of, of what I've done. And, and, and was so she, was was she born here? No. My mom was born in Mexico, a little tiny, tiny town, um, and came when she was 12 uh, and – you know, had never experienced anything American until she came. And, um, but, you know, she did okay. And how about your dad? So, my dad, it's an interesting story. He is from Ohio, like the family's from Ohio. So he's white. Um, but he's not my biological dad. Um, my biological dad is Mexican, but I've never met him. I, a, a crazy story is that I didn't even know that my dad was not my biological dad until I was 19. Mm. So that's like a very big moment in my life. Um, Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So my so my mom and my dad had like a really tumultuous relationship, like not um, physically abusive, but really just emotionally abusive. My dad um, was very emotionally manipulative. To, to her and everybody to else? To her and everybody else. Um, and so... Like, in what ways would he be emotionally manipulative? Um, well, I can... I can... Like, the more current experiences for me were things like asking to borrow money, and if I said no, he would say, well, if you wanted to be a good daughter, you would help me out like this. Um, he wanted to borrow money from you? Yeah. I mean, and that was, I mean, he, like, took money from me since I was working. So that was is when I was 16. drunk or a drug addict? Gambling addict. Ah. Uh, yeah. Same thing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, so very emotionally manipulative. He would, like, lie to one person to to be, you know, save a relationship with someone else. And mm-hmm. it was this constant juggling in the plates. air. Yeah. Uh, at what age did he come into your life or was he always there? From the moment I was born, he was there. So he was on my birth certificate. So did he know that you he did know. Uh, so basically, my mom had left him right before mm-hmm. I was conceived, um, started dating someone else, became pregnant. And then uh, I believe from what I know, because I don't really care to know, uh, that that man was actually married. And so she came back to my dad and he agreed to raise me I as see. his own. Sure. Cause that, that I would imagine uh, this is probably unfair of me to judge a guy I never <laughs> met, but okay. I do for, <laughs> for a manipulator and an addict that's leverage. Yeah. That's yeah. a huge amount of leverage because then you can always play that card yeah. and get what you want. Yeah, I think that's why it took my mom so long until I was 19 to leave him again. Um, and I was off in college. So basically she was like, well, she's grown. Like, he's like, you know, I'm done um, being used in this way. Um, so when I was 19, she left. Um, it was really crazy because she was really afraid of him. And so when she left, she left for a week and nobody knew where she was. Like we knew that she had gone of her own accord. Like she, it was her decision to leave, but we didn't know where she was. She wasn't calling anyone for a week. I had no idea where my mother was. Were you freaking out? I was freaking out. Um, 
So she contacted my really good friend so that she could tell me that she was okay because she she was so afraid of him. Like she didn't want me to know where she was or anybody. Even though he'd never been physically abusive. Even though he'd never been physically abusive because she just didn't know how he was going to react. Um, and so when she left... Did she just pack her shit up and leave when he wasn't there? Um, or did she... I don't know because I, I was at school. Okay. Um, but from what I understand... I, actually, now that I think about it, I don't think so. I think she told him because when she told him is when she told me that he was not my dad. And that was, I mean, you can imagine, like, my whole world just turned upside down. Um, because in one fell swoop, it was like, okay, they're disintegrating, which is fine. I support that because I don't think she should be with him. But now mm. there's this whole other, like, bomb that's been dropped. Um, what did you think or feel when you heard that? And did you know I the felt, man who no, is I, your biological? He's still in Mexico. Like, So you never met I've him? I've never met him. She's tried to tell me about him, but I know that he knows about me. So I was like, well, if he's never really wanted to contact me, then I see nothing good coming out yeah. of out of that. Um, so you don't consider the chance to be abandoned twice a good <laughs> a good I don't opportunity. Know, man. <laughs> I feel like you know, then I'd have a good book to write or something. But uh, I just felt really betrayed. I guess. Um, you by know, your mom? By my mom. And then I did feel for a while, like, grateful to my dad for having rape. He didn't have to. Um, but then later I was like, oh, but he wasn't really that good of a dad. So I don't know if I actually won out on that, uh, on that decision. So, you know, it's still really complicated. Any other uh, highlights or lowlights from your relationship with, with him? With him? Well, so because of all of the manipulativeness, one of the things he did, for example, when I was really young, he would always take me to the racetrack and then tell me to lie to my mom. So we weren't really here. We were at the park. Um, So I learned... Uh, That's so fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. That is so fucked up. So, um, but you know, when I was little, I just saw that as like bonding time uh, with my dad. And then later... So I have a cousin who I grew up with because um, her parents died when she was really young. She's older, um, 11 years older. And so when I was young, I want to say like eight or nine, she got a checking account because she was old enough. And my dad stole from her using her checks that she had in the house. And he had me sign her name because my writing would look more like hers. And I like knew it was wrong, but I didn't know quite how wrong I was. I think he told me that she had said it was okay or something. Because I remember, <sighs> I remember being stressed out that I wouldn't write her name correctly, that like I wouldn't get it right. Like that's what I was concerned about. And then you know, years later, I was like, wow, that was like really fucked up. Really fucked up. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do that to your kids. Um, so, so he, you know, those are just, I mean, stealing from me, like stealing from me, you know, because when I was 16, I got my first job. So I'd have cash laying around the house and it would just disappear. And, you know, he would claim. And you knew where it went. I mean, I didn't know, no, uh, but. Did you suspect? I suspected. And, you know, he would, of course, say he had nothing to do with it. And then when I was in college, yeah, because I remember I was with. Um, my college boyfriend, um, 
he stole my identity. So, so I get like this thing in the mail that's like, you haven't paid your credit card in however many months. By the uh, way, you're the second guest I've had <laughs> whose stepfather has stolen their identity. Yeah. It's it's probably more common than than people would like to believe, but I mean, because it's the easiest, right? Someone yeah. in your family. So, so I get this thing in the mail that's like, you haven't paid your credit card. It's like, I don't have this credit card you know i call them i'm like i don't know what you're talking about um i you know figure out that he opened it cashed it out so he got cash out of the atm um had help from this crazy weirdo neighbor uh and then i had to you know like legally do all this stuff to get out of it and that was that was like just devastating so what's funny is like the last straw was something really small where he like had gotten parking tickets on my car because he'd been driving it and I told him to pay them and then he claimed he did of course he didn't so I just paid them even though I had nothing to do with it I'm in college on a college budget you know or Mm -hmm. grad school budget or something so I had like no money Um, I pay them off and I was like I'm done like we that's it I'm done. And so um, I also have an older brother who is his biological son. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you can tell him that I'm never talking to him again. It's just. I'm and how done. long ago was that? So this was um, like six and a half years ago. And did you talk to him no. after that? So that was that was pretty much it. Um he called and called and called and called me, saying he had done nothing wrong, saying that he didn't understand why I would make this decision, and that probably lasted like a couple years. They had to just add fuel to the fire in your mind. That, that must have yeah. just made your decision that much easier. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I was very upset because it was so shocking. Like, how could you not know that what you did was wrong? Um, and, you know, I went back and forth, like, should I tell him? Should I not tell him? Because, and then I just, you know, I just thought he's like a toxic person. He's stolen from me, his children, his wife, his mother, his sister, like everybody. Um, and it's probably because of like, you know, really bad shit that's happened to him, but I can't be responsible for it. No, no, and, like, he's, <laughs> and, and, and he's an addict. He's an untreated addict. Yeah, um, and even when he did come to the realization that he had like a mental illness, he used it as a crutch, right? So, oh well, it's because I'm depressed, and I'm like, well, then you need to go fix that because you know, just saying it isn't going to do anything. Um, so yeah, so then. I stopped talking to him, didn't talk to him for probably four or five years, and then I moved back into the area. And and I'm still close with his side of the family, just not him. So whenever I went to go to family functions, like, he was there. And I thought, well, it's been long enough. So the last couple years, year and a half, um, it was kind of like a relationship with a distant uncle, hmm. where you just kind of say hello give a hug, you know, talk about the weather or whatever. Um, And then that's it. And that was really okay with me. So. And then when we were in the lobby, (laughs) before we started recording, you said that you almost canceled. Yes. And I asked you why. And you said. Because he passed away. 
Um, so I got a call on Saturday night, like three o'clock in the morning, um, from my brother saying that he'd had a heart attack and he died. And it was not shocking at all because my dad had earlier he was a gam- he was always a gambling addict. But when I was really young, he was also a smoker, a drinker. Um, and a food addict. At the track? I know. <laughs> you wouldn't think those things would go hand in hand. <laughs> but they do. And he quit. He quit smoking cold turkey. But he did <laughs> have on a jogging suit a lot of times. So <laughs> you do true. get health points for that. I think so. As long as you look active. <laughs> I don't know why I'm just imagining anybody at the, at the racetrack has to have on a jogging suit. But I'm probably not that far no. off, am I? Um. No, he, well, he was a contractor, so he yeah. would wear, he'd go from work, so okay. he had a tool belt on. Okay. <laughs> but, um. So your brother called you So my brother Saturday. called me, and, you know, so basically in the past few years, he got remarried, and he has a six-year-old daughter, and who I really don't interact with very much. Um, but he, his food addiction came back real, I mean, he, in the last four or five years, he probably gained, like, Two to three hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'd never seen him that heavy. He was heavy when I was young, but he was heavy. Like, I couldn't even. I wonder if he understand. was cutting back on his gambling and then that's how it, it was. It could be. It could be. So, you know, so he they told us like a year, a year ago that he might need heart surgery. And I was like, they're never going to do it. They're, they won't because he won't survive it. And, and it wouldn't be worth it because he's not going to change his. Mm-hmm his like eating habits so that he had a heart attack is not at all shocking um but of course it's still sad um and i'm sad because it's sad you know like i'm not i don't feel like oh my god there's any unresolved anything because i accepted that this was going to happen and we weren't ever going to talk again a long time ago so i don't and it's only been a few days, so I don't know if my attitude's going to change. People keep telling me. Because when people first found out that I'd stopped talking to him, they, the first thing people would say is, when he dies, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret that and decision. Can I just interject at this point and, and say to people, I know you're well-meaning, <laughs> but if I get one more fucking email <laughs> from people telling me to forgive my, my mom, mm-hmm. by the way, which I really have, I'm not angry mm-hmm. at her, I don't hate her. Um, yeah. I just have to protect myself, exactly. and people think that there's this thing that you that you have to f- like forgive and 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 intermingle with the person who continues to hurt you. Yeah. And for some people, they may be able to do that, but mm-hmm. for some of us, we yeah. we can't. Yeah, it's hard because people, and I don't know if if your mom is like this, but my dad is is like a tornado. Yeah. You know, a tornado of just toxicity. Yes. It's like as soon as you get within a certain distance, he just sucks you right mm-hmm. in. And he knows how to push your emotional buttons, you know. Yes. And so, yeah, it is just a protective thing. It's like I would love more than anything to have a wonderful relationship with my dad, but he makes it impossible. Yes. And so I can't, I can't be, you know, I can't like just risk my sanity for the sake of having what other people think is like And I'm a, glad you use that word yeah. because it is, is insane constantly going back into a situation yeah. and expecting this person to act differently when they don't have the tools or the insight to do that. And it's the sadness that I... I feel more sadness than, than anything. And I wonder yeah. if, if what you're feeling is a sense of 
what a what a waste, what a yes. shame. Yes, that is exactly the thing because I I've also struggled with like telling certain friends that he's passed because I have this weird mixture of sadness but relief. Mm-hmm. You know, that like it's over. Like I don't have to think, oh, what if he's there? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? And, you know, this is going to sound, I think, really cruel to a lot of people, but my dad was a great dad when I was really little. Like, he would sing random songs and, you know, play with me. Like, he was always a a big kid. And so with his daughter now, he's he's like that, where she, like, loves him. Like, she's just, you know, in love with her dad. Um, It's also easy when you're too young to have shit stolen from you. (laughs) Exactly. Although, although he does, he did use her as um, leverage a lot with people. Like, oh, but I need to take care of my daughter. Can't you just help out? And but anyway, so I'm happy that she got the good side of him and doesn't have to grow up and get the crappy Mm -hmm. side of him. So, so there's that relief too. And I wonder too, with a, you'll never know the answer to this, but a person like that is is that niceness. Is that calculated on their part, or is that coming yeah. from a genuine place? Is that because, you know, the addict is usually such a manipulator because mm-hmm. the, 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 their drug, whatever it is, they need in such large quantities that to keep getting it, they've got to be manipulating 24 hours yeah. a day, keeping this lie aloft and that and canceling on this person and saying it's for this other yeah. reason. And and I wonder if there's that genuine thing is like, oh, I've burned enough fires these last two weeks. I need to, I need to get into good guy mode so yeah. I can rekindle some trust. And maybe that's just me being really cynical. But I think with some addicts that are really, really in their sickness, I don't think there's even a genuine, like, empathy and compassion for for other people because they're so consumed with numbing themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is that it really took me being in an abusive relationship with someone who was very similar to my dad to realize so much about my dad. Right. So, and and in that relationship is when I decided to stop talking to my dad because the person I was with was also very emotionally manipulative, but completely unaware of what he was doing. Like it was so clear that this is just his way of being, and I was just getting caught up in it because I'd already been, I knew the role to play, and you know, it was so clear. I was like, either my dad knows what he's doing or he doesn't. And I don't know which one is worse. That he (laughs) could potentially be lying to everyone because that is just his natural mode of being. And to this day, I hate lying because I I get really stressed out if Mm -hmm. I have to even like say a gray lie where it's like, it's almost true, but not really because I've seen my dad weave these tales of deceit, and it takes so much energy to keep them going. And so I don't want to ever get caught up in anything like that. But, but yeah, people who who emotionally manipulate often it's their go-to reaction as opposed to a calculated mm-hmm. thing. Well, you know, I can speak for myself and say that my wife, for years, would point out to me that. I would I would be passive aggressive because I was so afraid of looking as if I had a need and I had a want 
that I would passive aggressively try to get her to do things instead of just mm-hmm. saying, I would like this, would you please yeah. do this? Yeah. And it drove her fucking crazy. <laughs> and I'm just beginning to now see that, that it's because I, I grew up being afraid of having needs because yeah. that that was it was terrifying to to yeah. to have needs and so you just wind up it's just, it's easier in the short run to be subtle about your yeah. needs but in the long run it makes it so hard for people to get close to you because you yeah. never can say what's really going on inside you i know that so well so my reaction to not wanting to seem needy because i have it like so strong is to just not have them is i will literally do everything on my own and it's that's like impossible many of the times but i would rather do something on my own than ask someone for help like it's just it's just so aversive to say i can't do this can you help me and it's the greatest phrase you will ever say when you find those people that are like i would love to help you Mm -hmm. and the irony is i love helping people like i am all about helping people but needing that help is so hard. i'm working on it and the crux is finding those people that's the crux and that's why i always talk about support groups Mm -hmm. it's therapy is great therapy is awesome but you're you can't call your therapist in between sessions yeah. and say, could you come over and, and hug me? Or yeah. could we go out to dinner because I need someone to talk to? Yeah. Yeah. I've actually thought about doing support groups. I don't currently, so I just talk to my friends. I would imagine yeah. that there is some support group, probably a 12-step meeting for um, loved ones of gamblers. I'm sure yeah, there is because there's that for all every other addiction. Yeah. Um, uh, there was something else I wanted to ask you, and I've so talk about how you came to to go to therapy. How long have you been going? So, uh, so that came from the abusive relationship. So, well, let's go back to that then. Yeah. Let's go to the abusive relationship. Yeah. So, just to just to also say that the other half of the mix was that, like, while my dad was doing all this craziness. My mom is like the most passive person. So my mom became the person I did not want to be. Right. So it's like, okay, well then she he's gonna be this and she's not gonna take care of me, so I'm gonna take care of myself. Uh but yeah, so when I was in when I just started grad school, I started dating someone and it was long distance and he just had tons of issues. Uh, but the biggest one was like a big jealousy streak. Like huge, like like I wouldn't answer my phone and it was like, oh, you must be with someone else. Who are you with? Uh, and it got to the point where I couldn't even sleep. Uh, so I went to the therapist at, because on college campuses, it's free. That's awesome. Uh, and I just said, this is what's going on. And she said, you need to break up with him. Like, you can tell him I said it. I don't care what you do. You need to get away from this guy. And uh, as much as I wish I could say that that's when I broke up with him, it still took another, like, six months for me to really, truly... What happened was I just got so emotionally drained. Like, I had zero emotion left. And I was like, okay. He's taken everything, everything I had. Was, were, were you trying to have it both ways where you could extricate yourself from it and minimize the hurt to him? Yeah. So what my dad did 
Which is, is crazy making, by the way. I know. Is that he, uh, so for a long time, I wanted to fix my dad from the moment I can remember from when I was like six. Uh, I wanted my dad to be a better person, and I truly, truly believed that I could be the one to make him a better person. How did you think you were going to do that? I mean, it was little things like when I was, so the earliest memories when I was six or seven, and he smoked, like two packs a day. Smoked. And, um, and you know, that's when they teach you that smoking can kill you. And I was like, my dad's going to die. My dad's going to die. So I threw out his cigarettes, and I was like, Done and done. Now, you know, now my dad's going to be okay. And I I almost got hit for that. Like, that's how upset he I mean, it was just a huge rampage. And he couldn't even see anger. how much you cared no, for him. He, like, couldn't see that that's I was the upset. saddest part. Yeah. And my mom was just like, just give them to him. Just get, like, she couldn't, she also couldn't understand why I had done it. Like, and her thing is just minimize, 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 minimize. Have you have you ever gotten in touch with any anger that you feel towards her for being that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of my therapy sessions. Okay, it's about just like no one let me be a kid. You know, no one just was like, "I'm going to take care of you." And and the this is the cycle, right? The cycle is. Oh, she's so smart, or he's so smart. Um, she's basically like a little adult, so we'll let her take care of herself. Isn't that wonderful? There's no... What are we doing that's making her think that no one's going to take care of her? Right? And so then I became the strong one in the family. Like On everyone, the Yeah, and, and then everyone comes to me. Everyone comes to me. For money, for help, for advice, for everything. And never thinking, oh, maybe maybe this is not the best idea. And so that's like the weird cycle that happens. Um, but yeah, a lot of, so I ended up, so I've been in therapy for like probably three and a half years now. It started in, in grad school and um, like I was saying earlier, grad school is just, it's enough to make anyone go insane. You know, it's just... What, what was your first breakthrough in therapy where you began to feel some relief or some light at the end of the tunnel? Or have you? Yeah, I'm, um, yeah. I mean, it's a process. You know, it's still, my therapist will say things. I'm like, that can't be true. Like what? <laughs> um, so one of the things I struggle with, because with my dad, I was able to cut him out, um, is I tend to just see things in black and white. Right? So it's either like, it's good or it's bad. All right, and I'm good or I'm bad. I have a book a book for you to read. Okay. It's so fucking good and it <laughs> describes exactly exactly the children that grew up um afraid to where the parents' needs were placed ahead of theirs. It's called uh, the narcissistic family. Mm. And that's one of the hallmarks of the child yeah. raised by um one or two narcissists is they really struggle with gray thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, especially because, like, one of the things my dad used to do when I was really young is push me on the grades. So if I didn't get an A, it was like, why didn't you get an A? Um, and so I didn't feel perfect unless or good unless I had, like, all of the A's. Uh, and then for anyone who's ever been to grad school, <laughs> it's 
all gray. There's no, mm. there's no black and white ever. Um, so you never knew where you stand. Yeah. So you don't know where you don't you, know what your where worth you stand. is. You don't know where you stand. And the worst thing you can do is compare yourself to the best person in the group. You know, because there's always one who's like amazing, and you know, it's just getting stuff done left and right, and you know, it's way ahead of everyone else. And you're like, they're obviously the good one, and I'm the bad one. Um, and it's hard because there's so many. And forget about the fact that you were previously just thinking, if I could just get into grad school. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I got into a really good program, like a program that I would never in a million years have thought I would get into. Um, and that's actually an interesting issue because I tell people where I went to school and they assume a lot about me. They assume I have money. They assume. Can you say what school you went to? I'd rather not say. Okay, <laughs> but it's it is a school where every you know every parent wants their kid to get into that. Okay, school. Uh, and so. And so, were you on scholarship to this? So, with a PhD program, they pay for you mm-hmm. to get in. So that's hard, right? Because they're like investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in in your ideas as a grad student, and your ideas could be bad. You know, they could, like, not work. They could, you know, and then especially... Is that all PhD programs they're paid for? Pretty much, yeah. If you're paying for a PhD program, (laughs) that's probably not a good sign. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) master's programs are usually you pay out of pocket, Uh, but a PhD is is they they pay for you. So that was, you know, great. I actually have a really funny story where when I got into the school and I, you know, called my parents. This is when they were already... Separated, so I called my mom, and she said, "Wait, where is that school?" And if you knew which school, it's like everybody knows mm-hmm. where this school is. And I was like, oh, "Of course." And then I called my dad, and he said, "Wait, so where? How are you gonna pay for it?" And I said, "No, no, no. They pay me. They pay me to go to school." And he said, "Are you gonna play for the basketball team?" And I said, "No, no. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I just have to think." Um, so, yeah. A really funny story, but like you know, the pro- it's just such a hard. Pro- I mean, I would every week the first year I was like, I'm going home. This it's just so intense. And what if I'm not cut out for this? What if I'm not as smart as they think I am? Um, and part, I mean, there were moments when I knew this was crazy and not true, but I was like, maybe they just wanted me because I'm Latina and. They could like you know say that they're mm-hmm. diverse and that they don't really <laughs> mm-hmm. think that I'm that smart. And then I was like, no, that's a lot of money to invest in someone, um, just to you know up their numbers. So yeah, it's just hard. And I, if I hadn't gone to therapy when I was in grad school, I would not have made it. I would not have made it because therapy at least let me realize that. That I like a lot of the thoughts I was having were a little intense, and I could somewhat work on on not having some, such intense like truths that were probably not true. Yeah. Right. So I'm either good or I'm bad. Um, I'm either smart or I'm not. Um, so so that helped a lot. But. And did you begin to feel some relief from knowing that? <laughs> every thought that went through your head wasn't necessarily the truth? Yeah, yeah. I should say every negative thought. Yeah. It does, 
Yeah, because, you know, sometimes you can just say, well, I'll, I'm not going to believe that for now. Maybe it is true, but Put I'm not going to believe it. Yeah, um, but I'm not going to believe it for now. And, you know, that's when I started realizing that I was in a tough position. Like, my family didn't prepare me to take care of myself because I was taking care of myself. You know, like, I was... I was So when I was 12... I so I went from a private school to a public school because my family couldn't afford the mm-hmm. the uh, tuition anymore. Very, it was a very like low cost private school, but it was still too much for my parents. And so I, I ended up in a in a public school the last year of elementary. So I was twelve, and the the feeder, the middle school that it fed into, was like the worst. It was horrible. Like it was full of gangs and it was just had a really bad reputation and uh so I told my mom I said I I really don't want to go to that middle school like I don't know what else there is to do but if there is anything I would like to like figure it out and this is before Google right so Mm -hmm. somehow I figured out like I just took my mom to the like local education department and I was just like I don't want to go to this middle school what can you do for me? And they, I think they looked at my grades and they were like, oh, well, you can go to this other middle school. You just have to get yourself there. We can't like bus you in because you're too far. And I said, okay, tell me what I need to do. And so we filled out all the paperwork. And then from, you know, seventh grade, I started taking public transportation an hour to school by myself because I couldn't I couldn't, like, picture myself in such a bad school. And my mom, like, just kind of followed along. She was just like, okay, okay, tell me where to sign. Okay. That blows my mind <laughs> and breaks my heart at the same time. Yeah, but it was, you know, like, what I had to do. And so my knowledge of taking care of myself was built from a child. You know, it's like from a child's point of view. And all about your practical needs, but nothing about your emotional needs. Nothing about emotional needs and nothing about, you know, just coming from like a family that lives paycheck to paycheck and we moved a lot because we often just couldn't pay the rent and stuff like that. There's no envisioning of a career. There's no like how to handle stress about you know, like your position within your field. Like that (laughs) is like... You know, really impossible for my family to even think about. And so when that happened, when I had to think, like, what kind of researcher do I want to be? Do I want to go and stay in academia or do something else? Like, my family couldn't help me with those questions. They didn't really even understand what they meant. Um, And at the same time, I felt and still feel as much as I'm working on it a huge responsibility to take care of them. Like, I'm the only one that's made it out. Mm. And and they think that you're, because you got your PhD, that you're going to be rich yes. in social work. Right? <laughs> Is it considered social work? No, um, it's it's just social psychology. It's like experimental Academia? Psychology. Is that yeah, what it's, it's considered? Academia. It's, uh, so, and the, even within academia, there's there's so many ways to go, right? So you can go to like a big, huge research school. Those are the ones we know, right? Those are like mm-hmm. UCLA, USC, um, Harvard, Stanford, all of those. Uh, and then there's like smaller, very well-known teaching schools. A lot of those are on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, 
smaller, like more teaching focused schools. That's like the Cal State system. Mm -hmm. And within that, there's huge like status. So I actually have a job, uh, a new job lined up to be a professor in the fall. And it's at one of the, it's like a Cal State Mm -hmm. level. And I can tell that people are like, but really? But you went to school at blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but I love teaching. I love teaching. I love teaching. And I hate that you're like, you know, bashing mm-hmm. my decision. So, you know, and so it's it's also hard to, like, how do you talk about that with your family who just thinks very practically about stuff and doesn't have to worry about those kinds of stresses. So it's been crazy. <laughs> it's been very crazy. But, yeah, without therapy, I don't think I would have been able to do any of it. You know, because it gave me just a lot of insight into those thoughts that I was carrying with me from having mm-hmm. to take care of myself when I was young uh, and realizing that they weren't good anymore. They were good at the time. They mm-hmm. got me through, uh, but they're not the thoughts I should continue that's, to and That's a really, really great point to make is that our, our coping mechanisms as children become anchors yeah. as as adults it's it's amazing the things that will get you far in your professional <laughs> career are sometimes the things that will destroy your personal life yeah yeah so so how do you feel like you're becoming more uh has has your i don't want to use the word sickness um your upbringing the pain ever expressed itself in a way other than making bad relationship choices mm-hmm. and being a workaholic were you were were you i don't know maybe i shouldn't put words <laughs> in your mouth so you're a workaholic an achiever and yeah. over, an overachiever yeah definitely um cutting um uh you know any any kind of other no nothing I won't say physically. I, I would say nothing physically harming, but I think I, I picked up my my dad's like weird relationship with food. Mm-hmm. So that definitely has come through. My mom. So I tell people that I like hit the genetic jackpot in the sense that like there's so much mental illness in my family, and I looked out and only got anxiety and depression. <laughs> um, so so I don't know my my biological father. So I have no idea what the issues are on that side of the family but um when i was growing up my um my grandmother was also an alcoholic um like severe alcoholic so i only knew her basically as a mean drunk she died when i was eight my mother fell into a huge depression and my family is very secretive so i don't know everything that happened but i do know that my mom was in a mental hospital um, a couple of months after that. And I, from what I can deduce, I think she tried to commit suicide. Your mom did? Yeah. And so that was hard. That mm. was hard. And all I remember really is that it was around Christmas time. So my grandmother died in September. And then that Christmas, no, I spent without her. So I was, I think, eight or nine when all of this happened. So that Christmas I didn't have her. And I, like, couldn't... No one would tell me anything. So I I was just like, where is she? Like, what's happening? 
Um, and she came back, but, you know, as an adult and after going to therapy, I could see her depression so clearly, like mm. so clearly. And my mom carries a lot of shame um, about me, you know, about the way I was conceived, about the decision she made to have my dad become my dad. Um, just lots, lots of stuff. Um, so when I was 16, I had my first depressive episode and it hit me like a truck. I just stopped everything. Like I could be at school and actually continue to get decent grades, but I would just come home and just cry and just cry and just cry. And I like couldn't understand what was happening. Um, and I didn't like want to commit suicide, but I had these weird suicidal thoughts and I was like, what is happening? Like, I don't want that to happen, but I can't stop the thoughts from coming in. So I told my mom, so I sat my parents down and I, all I could really like get to come out of my mouth because I don't like asking for help, right, was I think that something is wrong. I don't know what, but I think something's wrong. And they just denied it. They just said, you'll snap out of it. You'll be fine. And I could tell that my mom knew that that was not true, but she didn't know what to do. My mom has a lot of anxiety over not being a good mom. And so she just kind of ignored it and let it go. Luckily, I did pull out of it. And then I didn't really have another depressive episode again until I was in grad school. And because of the like lack of routine, the lack of someone telling me exactly what to do, um, having to be my own boss and like motivate myself, you know, if I don't believe that I am capable, it's really hard mm -hmm. to say, you can do this because I don't know if I can. I don't know if I'm able. And and it would hit again. And and I think that's that that black and white thinking because we think if I'm not able to do this, that's the end of the road. That it couldn't possibly be laying the groundwork for something else that needs to happen. Yeah. That you know, we have this this linear black and white thinking that is so rigid. Yeah. And life is very rarely do any people live the life that they linearly planned out to happen this i will do this and then mm -hmm. this will happen and that will happen and that will happen and, yes. and even the people that do wind up becoming uh dismayed by yeah. what it is flexibility <laughs> is so fucking important but it involves optimism and patience and faith and when you're raised in an environment <sighs> where there's no trust yeah how do you generate those things yeah and it's also coming from a family that just thinks, oh, you're so smart, <laughs> right? Like, if I don't, if, there, if there's any sign that I'm not smart, they must have been wrong. Someone was wrong about mm -hmm. that, uh, that assessment of me. And, yeah. And, and my uh, depression is mostly just, like, sleeping, I just can't. Oh, sweet, sweet sleep. Yeah, like I just can't. But it's, you know, it's like the worst sleep ever. It's just horrible because it's really just trying to escape from from everything. So, you know. You must not have the pillow that I have. <laughs> I need to get that one. <laughs> so that, way, that way it's just a vacation yeah. as opposed to a depressive. When I episode. squeeze my pillow, it says there, there. <laughs>
<laughs> you should market that. Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably not great. It's, you know, it's so great. It's just so weird because all of my family has issues and we don't talk about it. And so one of my biggest fears right now is with my dad dying. My brother and my dad were very close, very close. It was super dysfunctional, their relationship. Um, but I'm very worried about my brother. I'm very worried. He's definitely good. He's sliding into a depression right now. Like, I've already talked to him, and it's not good. And I'm actually really scared that he's going to react to my dad dying the way my mom reacted to her mom dying. And that's, you know, he has three kids. Like, he can't do that. Uh so, so I think, and the sad thing is, is there's nothing you can do, yeah, to save him, right, from that. I think just, you know, I've just let him know, like, I'm, like, I don't want that to happen to you, and I, I, I'm here. Um, so I think, and I think that's the best thing that anybody could ever say is, I yeah. love you, and I'm here for you. I'm worried about you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to do. It's just, I do feel like whenever these crises hit, my mom backs away because she feels so incapable. Mm -hmm. um, and I've tried to tell her, like, just say, I'm here or I love you or whatever. And she just still feels very inadequate as a mom. Um, and that's been, that's been tough to deal with. You know, and it's it's just hard because I think... When I was little, and I still like very much remember being little and thinking, I'm gonna just so this is what was happening. My family was crazy. My my brother is ten years older, so when I was four, this is like the story that really like <laughs> says it all. I told my mom that I didn't want to grow up. I said, That's not for me. <laughs> and that's basically because I was I saw all these adults and they were like fucked up you know like they were all unhappy always fighting I was like that just seems like not a great deal you know and so I said I'm, I'm just gonna stay four four is like a really good age for me <laughs> I'm in my sweet spot <laughs> yes um, four is my wheelhouse yes. <laughs> you know before like school start that seems like a lot of work too and so I'm just gonna stay four and my mom has a very morbid sense of humor and so she thought it was funny and, and said, well, if you want to stay four, you could, but that means you would have to die and go to heaven. And, oh, my and God. And, like, stay with the angels. But then you'd be four forever, but you wouldn't be here anymore. And I, to me, this is actually, like, a great response because then I said, okay, never mind. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if that's what has to happen, then maybe I should just see what this growing up thing mm -hmm. is all about. Uh, but, you know, I just... I just didn't want to be the people who I was surrounded by. And, and I still remember, like, my, my brother and my dad fighting and my mom getting so upset. And me having the thought of, I'm just going to be the good, quiet kid. Because my mom has so much going on already. I don't want to add to that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to be the good, quiet kid. But when I grew up, right, like, the past few years, I realized that what I really thought was... I'm going to be the good, quiet kid for now until it's my turn to be the kid, like the kid who people take care of. 
and that never happened because, you know, they were so busy with my brother um, and then busy, like, with his kids, you know, busy mm-hmm. with their own illnesses. And now the the emotion I struggle with the most is feeling cheated. Is there a temptation when you get into a relationship to want to be I don't know if parented is the right word, but to be taken care of by that person in a way that is maybe unrealistic? No, well, no. So my reaction in relationships has been thus far to take care of people because I, that's what I know how to do really well. And then they won't leave? Uh, no. So my so I, I, in my head, I'm making the same uh, deal where I'm like, okay, I'm going to take care of you, but you have to take care of me. But I find people who don't know how to do the taking care of, right? Because those are the people I grew up with. <laughs> and so what happens is I take care of them and then I need support. It doesn't come because I've we've set up the relationship now where I'm the caretaker. Um, and then I'm completely resentful. And you don't know how to express your needs or your feelings to them. So they're confused as to why you're angry and being passive-aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I'm just, I won't say aggressive, but I just get angry. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I needed you for this. And you were like completely, or you, you see me sitting here stressed out and you're not asking me what's wrong. Like, but then I have gotten... You know, some moments where people take care of me and I don't know how to react. Why? Because I've never been in that What does it feel like? Position. It feels... Uh, I feel needy. You feel weak? Yeah, almost. Like, I shouldn't... This shouldn't be happening. Do you feel vulnerable? Like, like you're open yeah. to something... Like you might get hurt? Or what? Um... I'm trying to think. Or is it is it the unknown that is just kind of freaks you I out? I think it's a little bit of the unknown, but just, just yeah, like needy, and that that's you know like I'm so against having needs. Yeah, like this is kind of pathetic and selfish <laughs> yes, of me. Pathetic is probably the word I'm looking yeah. for. Pathetic. I have you know I have had relationships where where it's it's fine because I feel like it's going both ways, and then I'm okay. But if I ever feel like I'm I'm really being taken care of. It, yeah, it just feels very, very odd. So that's why I, I'm, you know, one of the things I'm working on is asking people for help when I need it. Like when my dad died, like, you know, my reaction was just stay in my apartment, you know, just like don't tell anyone, just deal with it, take care of my brother, you know, uh, all that stuff. And then I was like, oh, I should probably call my friends, you know, and one of them came over and just like stayed the day with me. We just like watched TV, nothing dramatic. Yeah, nothing crazy, but that's what I needed, you know, and and she left and I kind of like fell apart and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> now I see that while she was here, I, I could like keep it together. Um, but if I'd fallen apart in front of her, she would have been fine too. So, Did you find yourself fighting the urge to fall apart in front of her, or it just didn't come up? No, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. So this is one of the things that when you grow up in a family with tons of issues, you learn how to be different people, mm. right? So you are the person, you are at home, like, dealing with the shittiness, and then you go to school or work or whatever, and you just have to forget. You just have to, like, not let it 
affect you. And I think that's why when I'm when I am depressed, I still like go to work and act out working mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I go home and I'm like a mess. Um so it's 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 one of those automatic things mm-hmm. where if people are around I I learn to like I feel better. I feel better. I'm distracted. Um but then as soon as they're not there, I don't have anything to distract me anymore and mm-hmm. that's when that's when it all comes rushing in. So that that compartmentalizing is is something I got really really good at, uh, and it's it's not always easy, you know, because sometimes those worlds are going to blend, uh, and that's really anxiety provoking for me. So, so yeah, so I don't like have the urge to hold back feelings; they just hold themselves back. That's a little scary now that I think mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> well, you seem like you're making progress, though. You're committed to therapy. You're open to the idea of going to a support group. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that my dad, you know, there's so much bad stuff that happened with with my dad. But when I decided to stop talking to him, it was, you know, like he's just a toxic tornado. I need to stay away from that. But I knew that so much of his behavior came out of a place of like deep pain like deep pain and that's when I realized I cannot fix that I have nothing to do with that I can't fix that and you know like now these days I'm kind of up and down even before he passed away I've been up and down um a little bit more than than usual. I think it's like the stress of like I'm going to be starting a new job and it's a whole, I'm moving and it's you know just changed hard. Um, but also in the past few months, my therapist and I have been talking about possibly starting medication, and I've been kind of just like mm, I don't know, maybe I don't know, you know. And she said, "What it will in the best case scenario." It'll just like take the edge off of your emotions because when I'm, you know, emotional, I'm like mm-hmm. really emotional. Um, and I said that sounds amazing. That sounds just perfect. Like if I could feel my emotions at eighty mm-hmm. percent, I think it would just be so great. But I was still kind of like wishy washy about like making the decision, and then, you know, the day after I found out that my dad died, I took a really long walk, like just long walk. I'm, I live relatively close to the beach, and so I walked like four miles <laughs> just to think mm-hmm. about it. And I was like, I could see his pain. I could see it. Like, when he gained all that weight, I'm like, that's pain. You know, like, that's a visual like reminder of mm-hmm. how much pain he's in. Um, and I feel pain. But I refuse to admit it. I refuse to say that I'm in pain. Like, I still somewhere deep down inside as much as I know about psychology as much as I know about my my family like I still somehow believe that I should be able to mm-hmm. fix it yeah. like I should be able to just tell myself stop feeling this way you know just get it under your control your pain's not valid but other people's are yeah yeah that's exactly how it's felt but then I thought my dad's pain affected so many people so many people not just him it's like sad that he was in pain but it's it adds to the sadness that he caused so much pain because of it. And so I thought, 
so I called today to like make an appointment to get on medication because I was like, I don't want to affect people. Like mm-hmm. it's almost okay if I go through it, but I don't want other people to feel. There's no harm in trying it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely was. I think I don't know. I was just like not a hundred percent committed yeah. to it. And psych meds don't make you euphoric. They just bring the bottom up so yeah. that you can be more of your normal self. Yeah. I've used the analogy a thousand times, but it's like a diabetic taking insulin. Mm-hmm. That's not cheating, is it? Yeah, no. Yeah, and I, you know, I think back to, like, when I was in college, I was relatively mentally healthy, you know, and mm. that's because I had a very, like, set out rules, like, mm. this is how you get an A. This is how you get into grad school. This is, you know, all of those things. And so I could just follow them and do it well. Um, but now, like, even in my new job, like, I I answer to me. And if this is what I truly want to do and I do, then I'm going to have to, like, figure out a way, yeah. you know, to not let it make me crazy. Yeah, and one of the f- first casualties of depression is inspiration. And when you're working for yourself, inspiration is currency. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, yeah, so I think, you know, his passing has reminded me how important it is to take care of myself. Not not just not just for myself, cuz it's still hard to not think mm-hmm. of that as selfish. You know, that's Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard not to It gets to think. easier. It gets yeah. easier. It's it's a it's a process. I mean, you know, yeah. you've been in therapy for three years, and you can see the progress that you've made, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first went in just talking about my family, I would just be in tears, mm-hmm. like, you know, the whole session. And feeling guilty that you're talking about them yeah. behind their back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes I fear, like, oh, what if they know? <laughs> what if they know they're the, the reason I'm in therapy? But, um... But yeah, you know, it's it's definitely still a pro- I think the the biggest thing is just we look at people who we think have made it and we think they have it so easy. Mm-hmm. And I know this is like a weird parallel, but I often hear people saying that celebrities are are supermodels. Like, why would they ever have anything to complain about? I'm like, because they're human beings, you know, <laughs> like we all have have problems, and I think when when we look at at successful people and think that they must have it easy or or they don't have any worries or even people who have a lot of money, like everybody has their own story. I always think of the um, what Ringo Starr said um, when the Beatles were at the at the height of their popularity. He called up George. Uh, Harrison and said, uh, I, I got to quit the group. And George was like, why? He said, I'm just tired of it always being the three of you and me being on the outside. And George said, I always feel like it's the three of you and I'm on the outside. And they called John Lennon and he said yeah. the exact same thing. So yeah. if you're in the most popular band of all time at the height of its popularity and you feel like an outsider yeah. and everybody else has got it going on, yeah, I think yeah. that's pre- a pretty pervasive common thing to yeah. Yeah, especially especially with, I don't know, you know, in professions where people just don't talk about anything personal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, it's it's just hard to see what's going on behind the scenes. So I would imagine too, especially in 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 a 
in a field where intellect is prized because to detach from the intellect and then to begin to talk about emotions, that's, that's kind of a big segue. Yeah. Yeah. Even though like so many of our research ideas come from our emotions, yeah. you know, uh, but we, we intellectualize right. them. And, and there's know, a safety in intellectualizing things. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, too, like there's my field also, like, I think sometimes I wish I thought more about how like my mental like illnesses will interact with the field that I'm going into because the people who get really rewarded in my field are the people who work 24 hours a day. They just work all the time. And I just can't do that. Like I burn out and you know and I and I fall into depressed depression mm-hmm. or I get really high anxiety which leads into depression like it's not good so I learned that I need to take breaks and you know if I need to take a couple days off then that's okay like you know but just because of the field I'm in like I will not get as far as they do and that's okay well I think if you open your mind up to what counts as success and if you count meaning Mm -hmm. in your life as success there's so many paths that can bring more meaning into your life Um, so many more than financial success or recognition because that's largely beyond our control but there's Mm -hmm. so many things that we do have control over that can bring more meaning to our life taking the time with students being a really present teacher um, taking that natural love that you have for teaching and let that shine by caring for your depression and Mm -hmm. make sure that it doesn't get muted by that that to me then you're touching lives and what's more fucking successful (laughs) than making the world slightly bit better place yeah I think my my initial, like, I can change people because of my dad and, and to some extent my brother, you know, has has made me a very good teacher in the sense that I am very present with my students and, like, I'm so concerned about, you know, if they're not learning, I'm doing something wrong mm-hmm. and I need to fix that. But in that sense, it's become a, a, like, really good version of that belief in the sense that I'm not... When I'm teaching, I'm not trying to change people. I'm trying to affect people, mm-hmm. right? And then they can take that and do whatever they want with it. But I know I did my part. Yeah. And I don't have to, like, check in on them and, and yeah. make sure. Um, so that's where, you know, I, I I now can see, like, where these things fall in line and where I'm going to need some help to, like, get me through it a little bit more. So... So that's where I am currently. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank, thank you, Renee. You want to do a fear off and a love off? Sure. I'm going to have to try and remember mine. Okay. No problem. <laughs> if you have to pause between them, I can I can edit uh, okay. silences out. No sweat. She had written hers down and then she forgot to bring them. <laughs> of course. Um, I'm going to be reading the fears uh, of a listener named Matt. And I'll start with his. He writes, okay. I'm afraid of being injured and having it ruin my life. I just fixed my credit, and it only take being clipped by a car to send me back into debt. Yeah, I knew that. Um, I fear that I'm really smart, but all of my ideas will be lost in my head. Uh, I'm afraid of having a relationship like my parents. I always hear my mother whispering, shut the fuck up, under her breath every time my dad talks. Ooh. Wow. That's... Wow, I got to get Matt on the show. Yeah. Um, I am afraid that I'm not as smart as I sometimes think I am. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Matt says, I'm afraid that I'm going to be fired. I've never felt like I was doing well at a job. I'm being paid for, but I've been at my current job for six years. I must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm afraid that I will never get over not being able to just be a kid. I hope I hope that you can <laughs> Me too. you can find that fun and silliness and being in the moment stuff totally unrelated to 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 work. It's it it's not easy but I think it's definitely doable. Yeah. Um I'm afraid of being honest about my occasional depression, dying and having my family be forever unsure if I killed myself or not. Wow. Um let's see. I'm afraid that I will start my new job and will decide that it was not the best decision. <laughs> That's so funny. We always have these synchronicities in these. <laughs> Matt's next one is, I'm afraid of staying at my current job for another six years. I can do it, but it's not what I want to do. <laughs> mm. Yes. Let's see. Um, I'm afraid that people will uh, find out about my anxiety and depression at work and treat me with kid gloves. <laughs> I, I used to have that one, and giving that up is one of the most freeing things uh, I've ever... Owning my mental illness is, like, so fucking freeing. Um, I encourage everybody to do it, because then you find out who your real friends are. That's true. Um, <laughs> let's go to loves. Okay. Matt says, I love the cold side of the pillow. I do, too. Um, I love when my cat runs up to the door when I come home. Uh, Matt writes, I love falling asleep alone and waking up with a warm body beside me. Hopefully, um, hopefully that's not a, a freshly dead body. <laughs> well, it's still warm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the sound of high heels walking down a hallway. Oh, that's a good one. Ever since I was little. <laughs> uh, I love admitting that I hate a book or movie on Twitter and have five or six people favorite it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that feeling. Um, I love when I'm teaching and that moment when that student gets it, there's like a flash of recognition on their face. That's got to be awesome. beautiful. It's awesome. Uh, I love being consistently creative like I can actually make a living as a writer. Along with that, I love when I analyze my data and I was right. Oh, that's got to be a great <laughs> feeling. Yes. The other, the other, you know, possibility is what I fear, but yeah. I do love when I'm right. <laughs> Um, and Matt's last one is, I love discovering people who are constantly, are consistently creative, people who are spewing wells of creativity, even if it's sometimes bad, especially when it's bad, because it makes me think it's possible for me to be a crappy professional <laughs> writer. <laughs> Going along with that, I love when I end up having a really nerdy conversation with someone, and I really wasn't expecting it. That's really great. Well, Renee, thank you so much for um, sharing your, your life and, and your insides with us. <laughs> thank you. And um, I really appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate this. This is really, really great. Good. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Renee. And um, we recorded that episode almost two years ago that was recorded in May of 2013. And um, uh, sometimes I don't let people know I'm posting their episode until the night before I'm posting it and I ask him for an update and um, I wasn't able to get a response from her other than that she was excited that the episode was going up so I don't have any updates for you but she's alive how about that how about that for for an update um, but she sounds she sounds good anyway 
Um, before I read a bunch of surveys and some emails and stuff that I have, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can support us uh, financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. And it means so much to the uh, to the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you can support us by spreading the word through social media, writing a nice review on iTunes. There's all kinds of ways you can you can do it um, without donating money as well. So appreciate that. All right, let's get to this. This is an email I got from uh, a listener uh, named Laura, and she asked a question. She said, uh, I was thinking it would be good if you were be able to talk about the first time you went to a support group and uh, what they're like, and did you make any friends there? And uh, the, the first time I went, uh, it was one for... Um, because I couldn't stop uh, drinking or doing drugs, and it was scary. It was really scary in my mind before I walked in, but once I got in there, people were laughing, and they were having a good time, and it was super safe, and I felt like um, I was home. Even even though I wasn't thrilled to be there because I didn't want to admit that I had a problem, it was still um, it was soothing. Uh, uh, the second support group I started going to, I didn't feel at home probably until about six months into being there, but I think that was because I really um, was I was really resistant. But it's funny because the friends that I've made in that support group now, uh, the friendship is much deeper because uh, that support group deals with issues around intimacy and childhood sexual abuse and sexual trauma and stuff that we've experienced and. The connections in those tend to be much, much deeper because the wounds are that much deeper, and um, that's been uh, that's been my experience and Herbert's experience. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself "The Earth Is Black in Puddles," and it's a very brief awfulsome moment. She writes, "My middle name is Joy, and I've been depressed since fifth grade, and have attempted suicide multiple times." I'm not laughing at that. I'm just laughing at the. The irony, but obviously you are too because you filed it under awfulsome moment. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself uh, poisonous. And she writes, and she's gay, and about her anorexia, she writes, I starve myself to see how little I can run on, how I need nothing and no one. I starve myself as punishment for being intrinsically bad and as proof of being indestructible. About her love addiction, I'll do anything so you'll stay. I'll do anything so you'll protect me. I think forgiveness is romantic, but I'm just too weak to set standards. About her PTSD, I feel like I'm from a different planet and can't communicate with anyone. Like my experience of the world is so terrifying that I must not be from the same world as everyone else. The nightmares, the disassociation, the constant fear, it ate me up. None of me is left. About being a sex crime victim, she writes, She broke me and now all I'll ever do is cut other people with my edges. Wow, that is, that is profound. Um... A snapshot from her life, she writes, I came out when I was 16 and my parents didn't look at me or talk to me for months. I lived at home, so I drowned myself in study and work so I didn't have to feel that rejection. I thought if I could be the smartest kid, it'd make up for the failure of being gay. 
They're better now, but I don't know how to tell them that it's kind of meaningless. The damage is done. I feel like they've ruined my capacity for love. I'll never get over the dis- I'll never get over the disgust on their faces. Thank you for sharing that. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by Pete, and uh, he writes. Uh, my wife called my shrink for an appointment after a long hiatus at my request. He was dead. After the call, my wife said, he's dead. Cancer. They said it took him fast. My response? Well, there you go. Oh, I love you guys. I love you. This is uh, Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a cat who is an asexual female. And she writes about having a serious health issue. Everyone at work knows that I have a brain tumor and now people say hi to me all the time in the hallway but I can see the judgment in their eyes. The why doesn't she hurry up and die already? The why does she still have her hair? The she's not really sick, she must be lying judgment that comes with having a terrible disease that's not actually quite as bad as it sounds. Neurologists won't treat me because I attempted suicide a few months ago, and so most of my problems are obviously psychological. Psychologists won't treat me because I have a brain tumor, small, slow-growing, but still tumor, inoperable, and thus most of my problems are obviously neurological. In the meantime, I get sicker and sicker. Well, sending you some love, and I wouldn't automatically assume what those other people are thinking that you pass by in the hallway. We have no idea what other people are thinking. And honestly, it's none of our business. Um, I like this one. This is an email I got from Frank. And he writes uh, something that helps him with his depression and having trouble getting out of bed. Um, he writes, and he was homeless for years. He writes, what he does now is he says, I have four huge three by three foot dry eraser boards on my walls and before I go to bed I write inspirational messages on them so when I wake up I'm literally looking at four walls of cheerleaders cheering me on and yes I draw images of stick figure cheerleaders too anytime anything I want I draw it I don't do it every day but damn I need to an example is he writes after I do morning yoga I will feel really really good really good thank you for that Frank this is an awful moment filled out by Whitney, and she writes, My mom was extremely controlling and abusive around matters of food and weight, and my brother died at age 23 of a heroin overdose. Um, my brother was obese from a young age, but he got his largest during the few years leading up to his death. The awful moment occurred the morning of my brother's funeral after my family arrived at the funeral home. My mom's friend put together a photo collage of my brother's life, and as she presented it to us, she noted that she couldn't find many recent photos. Then she concluded, but maybe that's for the best. He wouldn't want to be remembered that way. My mom agreed. Taking in the fucked upness of that, I waited until our family was alone again and then suggested that we all go to therapy. I said I planned to go. My mom said, no, I'm not going to therapy. I'm going on a diet. That is what I learned from this. Wow. Fucking... Wow. This next one I want to read because it is a textbook example of what, how dads not paying attention to their daughters can set them up to be attracted to men who are unavailable or abusive. Um, and this is from the Shame and Secret survey. And this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Fall Cortex. 
And she is, let's see how old she is. She's 20 and uh, bisexual, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was dating an older man when I was 15. He was 21 at the time. I had moved into his house as my house was absolutely toxic for my well-being. However, living with him was no better. One night he approached me about wanting to have a threesome with a friend of his who was uh, 50 plus years old. I told him I was extremely uncomfortable with this and would never want to do that. However, the next day I was watching a movie on the couch alone and he came home. I looked over to greet him and she was right behind him. I was shocked and asked why she was there. He told me that we were going to have a threesome. They then both came up to me and started taking off my clothes and I was scared beyond belief. So scared that I couldn't find my voice or the power to stop them. I felt like maybe if I just did it, he would love me more, which makes me sick. She kept commenting on my body and how tight and young I was, and he started fucking me and wanting me to eat her out. I was so grossed out, and I couldn't do it, but she kept trying to get me to finger her. I eventually started crying and telling them to stop grabbing me and penetrating me. I went up on the couch, and then he got on top of her in the middle of the living room and made me watch him have sex with this disgusting 50-plus-year-old woman. Woman. Uh, after it was all over, she started confessing to us that she was addicted to crack. So even when I thought I couldn't feel any more violated, I realized I'd just been forced to have sex with a crack-addicted 50-plus failure of a mother. Fuck my life. Fuck this memory. Fuck him. I continued to have toxic relationships. But and By the way, I'm going to try not to be offended by the fact that I'm over 50 years old. <laughs> I'm not. Um, uh because obviously in this situation it it's there's yeah shut up paul um she writes fuck him i've continued to have toxic relationships with men for years there was a man i worked with who was in his late 30s when i was 16 he would always want to finger bang me in the cooler in our workplace i wanted to feel needed and important so badly that i just let him do it i feel so fucking dirty about that and have never told anyone even after all that uh I had been raped by two other boyfriends in my late teens, which has caused my vagina to have multiple tears in it. I hate how I have to look down and be reminded of how many times I have tried to make a man happy and how they just took advantage of me. Now when I have sex, I disassociate and just, quote, let it happen. I hate this about myself. I feel like if I were stronger, braver, or more beautiful, none of this would have happened. I hate myself so much. Well, you know, my thought is obviously the main person to blame are the the people that wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, but you know, the, the the next person's shoulders that, in in my opinion, that should shoulder some of this blame is the parent of the opposite sex that doesn't that doesn't see that child, that doesn't make the attempt to connect with them. I know, I'm sure kids are hard to connect with. I'm not a parent, but um, they just, yeah, sometimes I'm just, uh, and there's more, there's more to her story, but I, uh, you get the, you get the gist. It's just something that I've read. I've read thousands and thousands and thousands of these surveys and I just see it again and again and again. The dad that doesn't take an interest in his daughter's life and she 
winds up in abusive relationship after abusive relationship trying to get a do-over on being with somebody who's emotionally unavailable. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself well-worn. And if I seem a little tired, it's because I am. Uh, normally I get this part of the the uh, uh, the show done much earlier than it is right now. Right now it's after midnight and I've had a very, very long day. Good in many ways, but even an awesome day, but I'm just a little bit tired, so I apologize if... I don't know if my pace is slow or my my brain just feels like it's moving very, very slowly. Um, but I've been in a really good place lately, too. I know some of you want updates on how my depression is doing. It's It's been lifting, and I've been having some really, really nice days. Um, continuing, this is Well Warren's uh, awfulsome moment. Uh, my psychopathic, sadistic father showing up at my work demanding access to me. I told him to get lost, but had to pop him in the voice box to get him to back off. He then says, okay, now we're going to have to do this the hard way. Half hour later, two sheriffs roll up. I have to go out in front of my employers and colleagues and tell them uh, that I am not, in fact, being held against my will, as my father is claiming. I'm 35 years old at this point. I've had similar experiences over and over as my father has tracked me, including working abroad, where he will often call my employer at home sometimes more than once a week, trying to explain to them what a psychopath he is and that I am happy to pay for caller ID so they don't have to take his calls is truly awful because none of them get it. I mean, why would anybody keep checking up on me unless they really cared about me? It couldn't be that he is a deranged, sadistic nut job who wants to make sure that I know he is keeping tag tabs on me and I can't stop him. And yet it's sort of funny to be stalked by my 80-year-old father. Oh, thank you for that. This is, <laughs> I love how one sentence can just completely change the vibe of a thing. This is uh, an email that I got from Allison, who is a trans uh, trans man. And um, I've corresponded with him before, or uh, with her before. And it's, um, her, her emails just always touch me so much. And she writes, as you may have noticed by now, I usually get the urge to email you when transgender topics come up in the podcast. I've been sort of putting off listening to episode number 206 because I knew you were discussing Leela. When I read the news reports, I couldn't even go back to work. I couldn't stop crying. I didn't know her, but I knew the pain. I finally gave in and listened to your episode tonight. Probably a bad idea while at work. It got to the point where you said you were going to read her note. I almost couldn't do it, but I listened on. It hit closer to home than I thought it would. It broke my heart in a very personal place. I once again started crying at work. It made me remember where I was just a couple of years ago. I was so fucking scared and afraid of my moving forward with my trans identity. I'm lucky to have had friends that pulled me forward while my family drugged me down. I know not everyone has that. I wish everyone could. Hearing your words really meant a lot to me tonight. My goal for the year has been to be living as a woman full-time with or without hormone therapy by 2016. I'm currently looking into legally changing my name and trying to find a doctor that will help me transition. I'm trying harder, not just for myself, but for Leela too. Anyway, I know you're too, far too busy to read long-winded emails that aren't actually leading up to one cohesive point, but I felt compelled to thank you for that segment at the end of the episode. 
And then I wrote Allison back and I said, um, you're so welcome. I can't imagine how emotional uh, Leela's story must be for you. I'm a straight cis guy and it brought me to tears. And I think your point was completely cohesive. And uh, I'm cheering you on and your brave move forward to express the little girl that always has always been inside you. Let her out. You know, I think one of the reasons I feel so connected to trans people is that having survived incest, I know what it's like to have the little kid inside us retreat at a young age because the truth is too painful to express. But my little kid has started poking his nose around in the last three years, and every day I feel him getting more confident. And your little girl deserves to walk freely and fuck what anyone thinks who doesn't understand. And ironically, it would probably be because their little kid is probably trapped by being raised by bully parents. And now I'm getting too meta, so I'm going to wind up my uh, rambling reply back to her. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by Carol, and she uh, writes that, um, her mother had killed uh, a kitten of hers when I'm sorry there's so many so much darkness in this episode but I really wanted to read these surveys um, her mother had killed uh, a kitten of hers in front of her when she was a little kid and uh, she writes I always felt so sad and guilty that I couldn't save my kitten now that I am in survivor mode I went to the Humane Society and adopted a six-year-old deaf cat whose owner had died no one wanted him so I didn't even have to pay a fee to adopt him. I love him so much. I've had him for several weeks, and I snuggle and love him to pieces. I could not save my own kitten, but I saved this poor, deaf, unwanted kitty. He wasn't perfect, so he wasn't wanted. I know just how he felt. I've been there. Now when I'm feeling down, he is always there for me. I like being labeled a survivor. I like my kitty's unconditional love. Life is good. Thank you for that. Uh, I don't think I'm going to read this one, even though I want to move that one over there. I'm feeling a little, uh, this one is filled out by a guy who calls himself dog boy. It's a shame and secret survey. And, um, he writes, um, he was endlessly ridiculed and uh, humiliated courtesy of mommy dearest while dad watched and did nothing. And um, Darkest Thoughts, he writes, I used to fantasize about strapping mommy dearest into a hard-backed wooden chair with duct tape and beating her living brains out of her skull with a sledgehammer. Don't worry, I'd never do such a thing and don't imagine it anymore. And then uh, under his darkest secrets, there is buried an awfulsome moment. He writes, I guess being told by my mom when she found out I'm gay, which I was only just beginning to come to terms with myself, she said that I'd rather you had died in that car accident because that would have been easier for me to deal with. Oh my God. That is awfulsome. Awfulsome. This is Shame and Secret Survey as well, and just an excerpt I wanted to read. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Tracer. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, but um, 
Darkest Secret, she writes, Last year when I was particularly depressed, I didn't shower for seven days. My stove is broken, so I boil eggs, vegetables, etc. in my kettle instead. I used to cut myself, but I stopped because someone I loved asked me to stop. But I still keep a whole pack of razors hidden in my room. I can't throw them away. I've been trying to for months. I still feel I need them. And then she writes uh, to the question, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're going to get better. If your circumstances don't change, then you will. Eventually, eventually. In the meantime, get your stove fixed. Kettle broccoli tastes really bad. (laughs) Kettle fucking broccoli. Uh, This is an awfulsome moment. A truly awfulsome moment. uh, Filled out by Jelly Blue. And she's in her 20s, and she writes, While at work recently, a customer, drunk and easily old enough to be my father, approached me while I was rolling cutlery behind the counter. He was with his soccer team having some post-game beers. Since his group had been served by the other person on shift with me, I had not had any interaction with him up to this point. This did not deter him from approaching me to tell me I look like a Disney princess while rubbing his nipples. Shocked and incredibly uncomfortable, I can't come up with any words to say. He then repeats it again several more times while still rubbing his nipples through his thin, sweat-stained t-shirt. While trying to figure out how to tell this guy to fuck off in a way that won't get me fired, all I could think of were those two episodes where you started off the show confessing you were unconsciously rubbing your nipples as you spoke, and I started laughing uncontrollably. Thank you for that. This is an email I got, and it is from uh, Edith, and she writes, Hello. Honestly, it is my pleasure to have contact with you today. My name is Edith. I will like to be your friend. Contact me back, though. Have a nice day. Thanks. You know, she writes, Honestly, it is my pleasure to have contact with you today. I hope she's being honest. I hope that she's not being dishonest, because then her pleasure um, would be deceitful. And... I would like, I would very much like to have a fruitful relationship with Edith because she does sound very polite, but um, I, I'm going to need to take things slow. So I'm going to email uh, Edith back and I will let you guys know how it goes, but she sounds like a terrific woman. This is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by... Felicia, and she is uh, gay. She's in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, She, to the question, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes, uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Growing up, my relationship with my mother was always incredibly codependent. She treated me like her spouse rather than her child. She told me about all her feelings and fears And it put an incredible amount of stress on me. But what I never noticed until recently was the complete lack of privacy and boundaries in our household. My mother would do things like coming into the bathroom when I was using it or pulling back the curtain when I was taking a shower. She would make sexual comments about my body and how desirable I was. She'd touch me but also preface it about how she wasn't being fresh. 
One time when she was incredibly drunk, she's an alcoholic, she crawled into bed with me and started cuddling with me. While I don't remember anything explicitly sexual happening, I remember being incredibly uncomfortable. There was a gut feeling that this wasn't right, that things like this weren't supposed to happen. There are giant chunks of my early childhood missing, and I have an incredible aversion to touch. So I can't help but wonder if more things occurred between us that my brain, for the sake of my sanity, just won't let me remember. I would say what you have remembered is enough to qualify as full-on incest. There doesn't have to be penetration for incest to happen. And that is as incestuous uh, as anything I've ever heard about. So, um, And really, really common, sadly, incredibly common. Um, she's been emotionally abused. She writes, my mother was manipulative and neglectful, but for most of my life, she wasn't physically abusive. Because of this, it took me a long time to actually recognize there was abuse. She used to tell me what a good mother she was, how much she loved me and everything she sacrificed for me, and I believed her. It wasn't until I was 18 that any actual violence occurred between us. She came home drunk one night and passed out on her kitchen floor. In an attempt to wake her up, I poured cold water on her, and when she regained consciousness, she was furious. We argued, and when I finally called her out on her alcoholism, she slapped me. Time seemed to freeze in that moment, and somehow I knew that my life as I knew it was over. I tried to step away from her, but she grabbed me by my hair, threw me onto her bed, and began choking me. I began to black out, and I honestly thought I would die. I don't know how I managed to fight her off, but I did, and I ran from her and our home. To this day, she claims she's not sure if this incident actually occurred. Any positive experiences with your abuser? She writes, my mom was my best friend growing up. You know, that always sends red flags off to me when somebody describes that as my parent is my best friend. I'm sure there are ones that there is a healthy connection there, but I don't know, man. That, that to me, is usually a person's way of, of unconsciously saying there were no fucking boundaries in our in our house. Uh, she writes, we shared everything together. We wore the same clothes, watched the same shows, and came up with our own little language of inside jokes. As a teenager, when I was feeling depressed, I would sleep in her bed, and, uh, a huge king, and feel so much better. I don't speak to my mother today, and though I know logically I've made the right choice, I feel like there's a hole in my life. Some days, I just want my mom back. Boy, I, I, relate. I want a different mom back, but I very much, I want a mom I so relate to that hole of just wanting a fucking mom. Uh, darkest thoughts. I have a lot of intense, unwanted sexual thoughts. I'll be around other people, and suddenly I'll start picturing myself having sex with them. I've had this issue since I was younger, and I don't understand it. I'm not attracted to these people. I don't want to have sex with them, but I have these thoughts, and they disgust me and embarrass me. I say be entertained by them. Thank your brain for sharing, and go, well, that was an interesting little short film you you showed me? Thank you. I'm going to go over here and read a book. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, truth be told, I'm terrified of sex. The idea of someone trying to touch me and gain pleasure from it makes me sick. Sick. I have no sex drive to speak of and no desire to have sex. I don't even masturbate. Um, 
to anyone because of how repulsed I am by sex. This extends to things like kissing, hugging, even a casual hand on the shoulder makes me tense up. I hate being touched, and when people touch me without my consent, even in an innocent fashion, it feels like something slimy has crawled under my skin. I'm so uncomfortable, I just want to run. That's how I feel when I touch my mom. And what you have described is textbook um, ripple, a textbook ripple of being incested or any kind of sexual trauma. So you're not alone in that, and that doesn't, it's not something weird about you. That's trauma. That is how your body is dealing with trauma. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy um, who calls himself Key. And he writes, uh, the past year has been horrible for me. A major hospitalization, seven more minor ones for a shoulder problem, being treated as a pin cushion for months to find out what's wrong uh, all night after getting dumped. So the past seven months after going broke and moving back to my dad's house, I've been smoldering and the most depressed I've ever been. Today, feeling enough motivation to go get a cup of coffee, a major feat lately, I randomly asked, Hey, are you looking for help around the store? Turns out someone had just gotten fired that morning and I was hired on the spot. Three days a week. It's not much, but today I feel like I've climbed a mountain. Three days a week now, I have a reason to get up, to be excited, to go out and interact with people and be excited to go home at the end of the day. I know it won't cure me of my depression, but now that I have a place to be, somewhere that values and appreciates me, the other four days, hopefully, I'll be glad I'm not working. I love that. I just love that. I love when people appreciate the little things in life. <sighs> this is Shame and Secrets survey. And this was filled out by a... Let's see. Sorry, my, my brain. This is filled this is filled out by uh, somebody who calls himself spent thirty minutes trying to pick the perfect name and uh, let's see. It's a um, transgender man. He is pansexual, queer, uh, twenty, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. A uh, boy in first grade put his hand down my underwear in class and rubbed my butt without my consent. He then, later that year, told me he wanted to hold me against a wall and rape me. I told my parents that both of these things happened, and they told the school both times, but he basically just got a slap on the wrist. I continued to be in the same class with him as well. I believe the handling of the incident made me feel that the world has no justice. I did what I was taught to do, tell my parents, and no real consequences came from it. I became anxious and afraid after knowing people would hurt me and get away with it. I'm also angry that it still bothers me. I want to be over it. Darkest thoughts. I worry that I'm transgender, not feminine, not attracted to masculine men, and don't have a high sex drive because of what he did to me. Basically, I worry he fucked me up. Darkest secrets. I'm so afraid of everything that I've never done anything bad. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I get turned on by domination, by being the bigger, stronger person in the relationship. And it makes me feel awkward because I'm, a, I'm very passive in life and would never want to hurt anyone. If you share these things with others, only my therapist. She's very supportive. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? A little sad and a little dumb for still letting it all bother me, but I feel heard and empowered too. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Go to therapy, exclamation point. It will help, exclamation point. It took me four therapists before I found the right one, but keep trying, exclamation point. To which I would say, fuck yeah. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Spiderling. And she writes, when I was younger, I used to feel really guilty for masturbating. I grew up in a Catholic household and felt stomach-churning guilt for enjoying something so much, but at the same time, I couldn't stop. In grade school, they would test us each year for scoliosis, tracing our spines to see if they seemed crooked. Every year, they would recommend I see my doctor because my spine seemed off. When we went to the doctor, he said the issue was that I had more muscle on the right side of my torso than on the left. Then he looked at me and asked, do you do a lot more with your right hand than your left? I froze and muttered something about brushing my hair, sure that my secret was out, and now everyone would know I was some kind of masturbating freak. Every year after that, I would dread the scoliosis test and having to explain to yet another person who might guess my secret. That's so fantastic. Uh, This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Gargle, and she is bisexual in her 30s, never been sexually abused, but she has been emotionally and physically abused. She writes, the physical abuse was in middle school. I was hit, slapped, humiliated, and stomped on by a boy a year older than me. It lasted for about two years. I think it's pretty minimal compared to what others have experienced, but it has left a lasting impression. The emotional abuse was the worst. I experienced it most severely from my mother. She was always suspicious of me, critical, cold, and dismissive. She had a lot of emotional swings, which caused a lot of pain, mean and cold to irrational and oppressive. I also experienced a lot of emotional abuse in the fundamentalist Christian religion I grew up in. It would be amazing to hear you interview someone who grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household. It's a completely different, wacky world that leaves its own unique scars. Uh, If you want to hear an episode, I know we've done more than one, but the one that springs to mind is the episode with Julie J., um, listener Julie J. Check out that episode. And it's a great episode just on its own, um, even without that topic. But yeah, she had a a mom who was a religious zealot, fucking whack job. Um, And the other issue that uh, Julie touches on is she was adopted and um, definitely had some some strong feelings about that and her place in the world. Uh, Any positive experiences with your abuser? She writes, I can't think about the positive experiences with my mom because I'm still so angry about what she did to me. I'm not ready to see her as a complicated human with good sides and bad sides, although it's happening slowly. The more I learn to forgive myself, the easier it is to forgive others. There weren't any good experiences with the boy in middle school. About five to six years after the abuse, I heard he had died in a car accident. I felt like he got what he deserved. All the feelings I had in middle school came back, though. Darkest thoughts. When I feel depressed, I imagine myself going through a meat grinder. It's not about dying, really. More like an extremely violent massage. My emotions and thoughts are so strong, I want to strangle them. Does that make sense? I'm not ashamed of these thoughts, but I don't want to frighten or alarm the people I love. It sounds kind of soothing to me because sometimes I want a massage that is like so 
deep in my muscles. I was picturing myself going through a meat grinder and I was like, yeah, it does seem like a certain part of there. Like there's no way your muscle wouldn't be more relaxed after coming through the other side of a meat grinder. So yeah, as fucked up as it sounds, I kind of get it. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I am extremely vengeful. I always fantasize about getting even with people. Maybe they have harmed me in some way or maybe they haven't and I expect them to. I almost never act these out because when the situation arises, it's never as dramatic as I had imagined it would be. I think it comes from all of the crazy bullying I had to deal with in school and at home with my mom. I felt powerless then. I also have bipolar disorder and I am so, so ashamed. I can't face it yet. I told my husband and a good friend, but now I'm afraid they will see me through that lens only. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, by a guy, it's a shame and secret survey, and it's filled out by a, a guy who calls himself Corviday. And he is asexual, he's in his 30s, he was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, he was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, uh, my mother had this boyfriend named Doyle. He had two sons. The younger son molested my little brother, who couldn't have been much older than four, and the older son raped me starting around the time that I was seven and he was 13. I'm now a 40-year-old man. My memory of the ordeal is foggy, but I know I was penetrated and that he tried to force me to fellate him. I don't remember if I actually did. I don't know how many times this happened or how long it went on. For a while, I suspect. All of this went on under my mom's nose. She spent entire Saturdays and Sundays in Doyle's bedroom while my brother and I went hungry and fended for ourselves watching television and playing in the basement and yard. In those long interludes, I would sometimes be abused. He was only six years older than me, but that made no difference. Yeah, only six years older than you. That's a big difference. Um... He might as well have been a man. I can't remember fighting back at all. He took me to a room in the basement that was separated from the rest. I remember there was a flimsy wooden door that opened up into the room and that if you pushed on it, you could get quite a bit of flex out of it. There were no lights in that room and I can recall uh, that there was nothing in the room besides an old mattress. Uh, that dark and shabby room was the entryway to the shambles of the life I live today. I won't say that the exploitation I suffered in that basement is the whole reason my life is what it is today, but it has a lot to do with it. I feel like I was robbed of my life in those formative years. I feel like who I was going to be was permanently warped on that day of the first rape. I have uncontrollable body shame. I'm basically asexual, but probably not in the strictest sense. I think I folded myself into that box over the course of a couple of decades of shame and dysfunction. Consensual sex was mostly unpleasant when I was still having it. It's been almost 20 years since the last time. I've had one serious girlfriend in my life. I am obese. I had a nervous breakdown in 07 and stopped teaching for good in 2010. I now live on a disability pension and waste my days aimlessly surfing the web and always preparing to be, but never actually becoming, a writer. I live alone in a small town that is cultureless and charmless. My friends have become increasingly busy to the point that I spend nearly all of my time alone. I'd probably kill myself, but the devastation this would cause my parents would be so overwhelming to them that I simply cannot go through with it. Hold on one second. Um, 
but I'm at a loss about what to do since I'm stuck being alive. No matter what I eat, what I set my mind to doing, I overcomplicate it and steal it of its joy, getting hung up in a tangle of self-loathing and dread. Each of my days is the same as what came before. I'm frustrated and angry and sad and ashamed and approaching hopelessness. But hey, spring training will be upon us in three short months. I think you would make a good writer. Um, he's also been physically abused. Um, he writes, does physical neglect fall under the umbrella of physical abuse? I would say absolutely. Does emotional ne neglect fall under the umbrella of emotional abuse? I would say absolutely. He writes, if so, I can answer yes to both. My mother was depressed for the entirety of my childhood, and we lived in a shabby railroad apartment in the small town where I still live. You know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of all the people that say, well, yeah, well, what about the side effects of meds? Look at the side effects of his mom not taking meds. Look at that. The last two minutes I've been reading are the side effects of his mom not having her mental illness treated. Maybe not if with meds. Maybe it could have been something else. But as I read about his mom, it's so clear that she probably could have been helped by meds. Um, my mother was depressed for the entirety of my childhood, and we lived in a shabby railroad apartment in the small town where I still live. It was filthy, like reality television show filthy for the seven years we lived in it. The kitchen sink was filled with the grossest admixture of foodstuffs and sour water. You are a good writer. Uh, trash was all over the floor. There was no naked space on the kitchen table. We couldn't go to the refrigerator and get a snack or a cold drink. Unspeakable things were inside. There was no visible carpet in the living room. The coffee table was covered in Pepsi bottles and trash. Each room was more the same. I slept on a love seat. My mother slept on one end of the couch and my little brother curled up on the other. We spent 95% of our time in that living room, mom watching television. I created a clean spot in a no man's land in the corner behind the confluence of the love seat and an end table. It was where it was there that I was able to exert some level of order on my chaotic life. I had a spot for all of my favorite books, my light bright, my beloved stuffed animals, my baseball cards, and my Viewmaster and discs. My mom loved us and was so often proud of me and my academic achievements, but she was the human equivalent of a wounded little bird. There was no aspect of our lives that was in any way proactively addressed by mom. I remember her mostly needing us to be quiet and be good because she had a headache or because she was tired. Every once in a while, our landlord would decide he wanted to inspect the property, and we'd spend the next four or five days feverishly cleaning up our hellscape of an apartment. When we were done, there would be a mountain of trash bags by the alley. When we'd finish one of these marathon cleaning sessions, I dreamed that going forward, things wouldn't fall into disrepair again. But they always did before we'd go through the same routine where mom would cry uncontrollably, uncontrollably about how we might be taken from her and then she'd freak out about how we would how we were ever going to have the time to clean up such a terrible mess my mother was so fragile that i knew that i shouldn't be causing her any extra distress i knew that she had already had far more than she could deal with i shouldn't have problems and if i did i should just deal with them quietly on my own I felt tremendous shame about how we lived. I knew that if anyone found out, we would be taken from my mom and she would become even more fragile and weak. I couldn't stand to see that happen. 
So I just buttoned it all up, the sexual abuse as well, and tried to cover up the fact that we were such freaks. Shame and secrecy and denial were the primary aspects of my childhood experience. Any positive experience with your abusers? Uh, Sean, the sexual abuser? No, I haven't seen him since my mom and Doyle broke up. I hated him when I was actively spending time around him. Mom? Yes, I love my mom, though she's just as fucked up today as she ever was. Once she found out that I was abused under her care, I told her when I was in my 30s, she's never been able to really be in my presence for extended periods of time. Her shame about what she allowed to happen means that taking in the shape and contour of my life is too much for her to bear. Darkest thoughts? I sometimes fantasize about killing Sean, and I often think of suicide. Um, darkest secrets? Um, I'm just going to read a few of them because there's a, there's a bunch. Um, I am mortified by the gaze of other people. I don't like to sleep in open spaces where other people may be. I will do anything to avoid having my photo taken. When it's posted on a social network, I will ask that it be removed. I can't look at myself in most mirrors. I have 14 gray t-shirts and two hoodies that I rotate. I wear the same thing every day. The clothes are clean, but I rarely vary them. I try to physically blend into the background and hide. I don't want anyone to look at me. I bristle when other people touch me, whether it be a hug or a friendly jostle. I'm obsessed with my body and how flabby it has become. But even when I was working out six days a week and pretty damn fit, I was horrified by my appearance. I have obsessed over the size of my penis since I hit puberty and will probably never allow myself to be intimate again because I have a baby dick when it's flaccid. Sometimes when I'm in the presence of a cooing type of mother, motherly tenderness that's being given to a little baby, my skin will secretly crawl. I can find myself actively loathing the tenderness of a mother with her child. Sometimes I actively root for agents of chaos. I call that aspect of myself the hard man. I stole the moniker from an essay that once appeared in Harper's. I'll find myself rooting for the beheading to be carried out, for there to be more people inside of the burning building, for the mysterious death to have been the result of a suicide. Sometimes I worry that I'm a sociopath. What, if anything, would you like to... Uh, sexual fantasies, uh, most powerful to you, I don't really have any. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to tell a woman I fancy that I do indeed fancy her, but that I have no interest in ever being intimate. I'd like to be able to pitch the idea of living together in a loving partnership, but never having sex. What, if anything, do you wish for? A life of daily writing and reading with a woman who understands me and my limitations, who loves me even though I'm really fucked up and probably always will be. Have you shared these things with others? No, because how do you even begin to try to explain these things to a woman who is beginning to show interest in you? Like if things are heading towards intimacy or she's waiting for me to make some sort of move and either I freak out or I simply never initiate anything. These situations tend to arise far earlier than I'd like them to, so I'm put in a position of trying to explain my oddness far earlier than I'm comfortable with. I would have to explain some things to a person whom I don't even trust yet. So I either violate, violate the sexual norms of a burgeoning relationships, but say, relationship, but say nothing about it, sending mixed signals or pushing a person away, or I have to be honest about things that will freak most women the fuck out. You know, as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, but there've got to be some women who not only understand that, but feel asexual themselves. There, there has to be. In fact, I, I think somebody recently 
talked about um, there being a bulletin boards for people who are asexual or identify as asexual. Anyway, it might be worth Googling. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? As hopeless as I always do. I have a therapist. I've been in therapy for years. None of the things ever improve. I just keep going through them and never coming up with any ways to make progress and feel realist that feel realistic. I would I wonder if your therapist is doing any kind of deep trauma work on what happened to you with uh with Sean and the abandonment from your mom because those are man, those are some deep deep wounds. But dude, we are sending you the biggest fucking hug that we got here. And um don't give up. Just don't give up. This is a happy moment filled out by Maureen. And she writes, The other day I went home for lunch as I do every other work day to let my dog out. It happened to be a gorgeous day out. So I took my leftover tomato soup I made the night before for dinner and ate it out in the back. My dog spent the 30 or so minutes happily rolling around in the grass while I ate my soup surrounded by our small herb garden our small herb garden, smelling the fresh basil, etc. It dawned on me how amazing this entire scene was, and I couldn't believe that this was my life. I'd been such a mess a few years ago, and now I was happily married in my own house with a dog that I absolutely am in love with. Even something as simple as making tomato soup would have not been a reality a few years ago for me. I almost had to pinch myself to believe that this was, in fact, my life. What do we have next? You know, we have a dark one next, but I honestly don't think I I have the, the energy to read another dark one. So I'm just going to read two more awfulsome moments and a happy moment. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment. This is filled out by Brew, who we read another, uh, I think we read a uh, struggle in a sentence from. And uh, Brew is a, a trans male who is uh, 16. And he writes, one time I was walking down the street in my town and some obnoxious teenagers yelled fag at me as they drove past. The funny part is I wasn't really upset that someone just yelled slurs at me. I was happy because if they thought I was a fag, at least they thought I was a boy. That's awesome. This is a happy moment from Melanie. And she writes, the other night, I spent an extra 15 minutes putting my three-year-old to bed. Usually, I am so exhausted by the time bedtime comes, I can't get her to sleep fast enough. But my depression and anxiety has reached new and discouraging levels lately, and I am worried it's affecting my parenting. Just laying there next to her while we talked about school and family and things that make us happy, for a little while, I felt like a really good mom. I realized no matter how bad it gets, I can never leave her holding her hand and stroking her hair, hearing her say she loved me. It was one of those sweet moments you want to remember forever. Mm. I can tell you as somebody who never got to experience a moment like that, um, it means a lot. It means a lot to kids, just taking that 30 seconds and just looking in their eyes. Um Because that just seems like that would have been heaven to me as a little kid to, to have felt that safety that, that I never got to feel. And um, I would imagine that that would be 
even if you were fucking up, as you would call, want to call it, in other ways as a mom, having moments like that, I would imagine, would be so repairing. Um, so I just wanted to read that. That um, that just warmed my heart. And finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Casper. And uh, he writes, at the age of 20, I hit a wall. There weren't enough drugs and alcohol in the world to kill the pain. In the previous year, I'd been kicked out of school, had a gun held to my head, and gotten arrested and convicted on felony drug charges involving $15 worth of pot. While still on bail, awaiting sentencing, I entered a two-month Buddhist meditation retreat. After two weeks of sitting in silence for 10 hours per day, my brain just snapped. It started out as relentless self-criticism, but gradually built up into an all-out war with several voices screaming in my head. I ran outside and sat in the pouring rain, imploring the voices to stop. They laughed at me. I felt like I would explode, like I had been constipated my whole life and I had to take the biggest psychic shit. Then it got quiet and I suddenly had this intense emotional realization, something that had never occurred to me. I hated myself. It was a sickening feeling. I cried and cried. I could not fool myself any longer. What a loser. I did not even like myself. Why would anybody else like me? And as I sat there blubbering like a baby, one of the voices in my head said in a soothing tone, Hey, Casper, that was very brave and honest. We like you better now. Ah. I cried even more, but I was laughing as well. I went back into the meditation hall and sat for another two weeks watching my entire psychology unspool before my eyes. I remembered everything that I had tried to blot out with drugs and alcohol. The beatings, the shame, the drunken fights, the head fucks, the complete and utter lack of nurture and safety. Oh my God. I had been carrying around this lost, wounded child, and we were finally talking. It was heartbreaking. But over time, before I even started any therapy... I was learning to love and care for that child and to really appreciate this amazing and vulnerable survivor. He taught me everything I know about the human heart. I don't think I would have survived the next year that I spent in prison without that experience. That was the start of a long and often difficult journey, but a journey that made sense. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you for that. That was that was really really profound. And all the all the people that filled out these um, these surveys, and thank you to Renee, and anybody out there who's feeling stuck, you are so 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 not alone. And um, just see tomorrow if you can get up the courage to just do one tiny thing. If you're having trouble getting out of bed, maybe just get up and make yourself some toast. You know, if you're having trouble with social anxiety, just say hi to somebody and in front of you in line for coffee. Um, and if you're afraid to reach out and get help, call a therapist and then when they answer the phone, hang up. Just start there. Start with a little tiny sliver and see how it works. And just remember that you're not alone. You never have been and you never will be. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.